following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Well, folks, if you're joining via Larger for Life or if you're joining from PresbyCast, we're glad to have you here with us this morning. We are coming at you live from the Reformation Worship Conference in Powder Springs, Georgia, hosted at Midway PCA, Midway Presbyterian Church. And we're sitting down this morning with Chad Van Dixhorn. He's a professor of church history at Reformed Theological Seminary, the Charlotte campus. And uh, as many of you may know, has written a great deal about the Westminster Assembly, Westminster Confession. Uh, probably the, his most well-known scholarly work is the, I forget how many volumes it is, published by Oxford University Press, the minutes and papers of the Westminster Assembly. Is that a, a seven-volume work? No, no, that's just a five-volume five, five volume work. Five-volume yes, work. Sir. And you can get it on Amazon for the low, low price of, what, $1,200? Oh, you know, there, there, there's a... <laughs> yeah, I can't even say out loud how much it costs. It's too embarrassing. Well, yeah, n- next question. That's all right. Well, I, I have a copy of it, but not because I'm fantastically wealthy or anything like that. But you didn't put a second margin on I, your I car. I didn't do that. No, like no. That, a, yeah. a dear, a dear widow of a OPC minister gifted it to me from his library, and so I'm I'm glad to say that I possess it, and it was yeah. a, 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 via an affordable means. Yes. <laughs> yes. But Chad, we're we're glad to sit down with you and ask a little bit about the the history and the background, certainly of the assembly, uh, more particularly uh, of the larger catechism. As our podcast is slowly working its way through the yeah, theology and pastoral implications of the larger catechism. But before I ask you anything about that, there's a story that I'm sure that I'm going to get wrong. But I'd love if you wouldn't mind sharing it with our listeners. It's forgive me if I goof up some of the details, but it's something about how you when you were in the midst of your studies at Cambridge, discovered something Westminster Assembly papers related in an old bathroom in some old college building or church building? Or what's oh, yeah. what's that story? Yes. Yeah, so, so the story gets mangled and embellished over time. <laughs> uh, the problem with explaining the story is what I really want you to do is just associate Chad Van Dixhorn with like Indiana Jones and just leave it at that. You know, just, just imagine something really exciting. You, you need uh, a hat. What's that? You need a hat. I do need a hat. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, so so um, two, two or three different things, I think, have got glued together here. I did do a study of Westminster Abbey in order to try and understand the environs, the, the, the specific situation in which the Westminster Divines worked. I got a contractor's badge, and they allowed me to go up and down and under. And, um, and the, the Abbey had just finished a, a lavishly expensive study uh, dating every door, room, wall, and so on, and had published it. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the man who did the work and his team had missed a room, really, just a little room off of the Jerusalem chamber. Uh, they, they'd sketched the room, but they didn't go in there. There was piles of junk and so on. And so mm-hmm. I, I went in there and uh, found a few medieval doors and, and uh, so on uh, that he had not cataloged. Uh, but more interestingly, there was a little closet, and there was what was clearly uh, an original alu, a, a WC, a restroom. Um, and uh, the, the seat had been filled in. Uh, the, uh, the air vent had been blocked up. But it was, it was clearly the, the little 
room that the Westminster divines used in moments of extremity. Uh, unfortunately, there's no graffiti left anymore, sort of down with the Congregationalists or, you know, George Gillespie was here or anything like that. Uh, and the Abbey was both very happy uh, with me finding this uh, and, uh, and very unhappy with their, their archaeologist who had missed huh. it. Uh, so that's my only archaeological discovery. It is just a bathroom at Westminster Abbey. Um, so no special inspiration given to you while you were there? No, I, I, I can't say that was a, a source of inspiration, uh, but it was interesting. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the minutes and papers of the Westminster, it's often said I found the minutes and papers of the Westminster Assembly. Not, not so. Uh, they were found in the, uh, recovered in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. uh, the Church of Scotland paid to have uh, Britain's best paleographer work on the text and create his own handwritten copy of it. Uh, which was uh, paid for by the Church of Scotland, uh, brought up to Edinburgh, and about a third of those minutes were published. The rest weren't thought to be useful or interesting to the Church of Scotland. Uh, when I found out that this was the case, um, I, I thought I should try and publish all of it. Uh, David Wright had already started trying to do that, but the project had faltered, so I took it over. Um, and I typed out the 19th century handwritten transcript of the minutes. Um, and uh, he was brilliant as a paleographer, as uh, uh, an expert in handwriting, but he had never checked his work. There were things he had missed. Um, he didn't think that paragraphs that were deleted and so on were necessarily interesting or important. Um, so uh, I used that as my sort of Rosetta Stone to help me learn the actual scribe's handwriting, which is truly appalling. He's trying to write as fast as people can speak. Uh, he uh, often did not separate his words. He did not punctuate. He did not use capital letters. He transliter transliterated Greek or Hebrew uh, into English characters. So you're not quite sure always what language is, is being used. And any vowel combination with the letters N or M, he just rendered as a straight line. So you can imagine if someone's writing really quickly, mm. all N's and M's uh, uh, and any vowels are just, just a line, and the words are all connected. So it was difficult to read, uh, but eventually I, I kind of got a hang of it. I did find some things. It only takes one good idea to get a PhD. Uh, my idea was that since everyone who's studying the Westminster Assembly was uh, uh, either in Scotland or seemed to be admirers of the Scottish, uh, that perhaps if someone went to England to study the Westminster Assembly, given that most members, all the members actually, mm -hmm. not the commissioners, but all the members were in fact English, I might find something. Uh, and indeed, I found a journal that belongs to, uh, that belonged to John Lightfoot, mm -hmm. a journal that had not been published or only fragments of it had been published. And it covers a part of the Westminster Assembly's history about which we knew nothing. Hmm. Uh, that was just published in full with all the other journals now annotated, introduced by Oxford uh, in January, February of this past year. Okay. It's prohibitively expensive. I don't want to talk about that either. <laughs> um, uh, and then I did find uh, dozens, uh, scores actually, of manuscripts by member by, by the Westminster Assembly itself um, in London, Cambridge, and Oxford. Uh, including a four pages of the minutes. So when someone says, did you discover the minutes? Uh, I can say a little bit and move on. Yeah. And then if they want a proper explanation, I give them that long rambling take I just gave both of you. Oh, that's, that's great. That's great. Well, 
Delving back into history, as we've been thinking about the catechism, we haven't really dealt with the history of the assembly at all. And so I know it's a dangerous question to ask, but, you know, the Westminster standards were not handed down from Sinai. They were the result of particular historical right. moment and historical yeah. circumstances. Would you be able to, in brief, talk about that with us? People think about this time, yeah, yeah. English Civil War, Oliver Cromwell, what was happening? Yeah. How, how did we get these yeah. Westminster standards? Mess. Yeah. Th- thanks, Sean. So I, I guess I'd, I'd say the English Civil War is caused by, by three problems, a monetary, political, and religious. Most of the people who are willing to fight in the war as ordinary soldiers were motivated by a concern uh, but by religious concerns, by the sense that the current establishment was oppressive, uh, unfair. Their solutions varied. Uh, Parliament recognized this as well, and after trying to solve the problem itself through its own committees and membership, it realized it was too divisive. They couldn't try and solve the religious problems that led to the war and fight a war at the same time. So they called up a think tank. think tank had 120-odd ministers, uh, 30 members of Parliament to make sure the ministers behaved, uh, minister, members of parliament mostly did things like say, oh, please hurry, the nation's on fire, and things like that. A couple did participate uh, in the debates a little bit more substantially. Uh, just to put that in perspective, there were, you know, one of the members who participated most from the House of Commons, a man named John Selden, was arguably one of the two most learned men in the whole 17th century hmm. uh, that we know of. Another man who participated uh, created his own Psalter. Uh, translated by himself out of Hebrew. Hmm. So there are very learned men uh, in, the, in the House of Commons who did participate, and a, and a couple lords. Uh, but most of the debates was conducted by the Westminster divines themselves. They were, they were charged with three tasks, uh, vindicating the doctrine of the church, uh, clearing it from aspersions or false interpretations, and then they were to settle a different verb, not clear now, but settle the government and the liturgy of the church. Hmm. Um, that second task was, was kind of an unexpected and radical one. Uh, everyone would have thought that the government of the church and the worship of the church had been settled already in 1558 um, and uh, uh, turned into law and so on. Uh, the first thing the Westminster Assembly did was to, in fact, try and uh, clarify any potential misunderstandings and make some improvements to 39 articles, the mm-hmm. doctrinal standard of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then some Scots uh, joined the assembly because uh, the rebels in England and the rebels in Scotland uh, joined together in a solemn league and covenant with military implications and religious implications. Now the churches were going to look the same. And uh, due to a crisis, a shortage of ministers, and the need to have a church government that would be the same in England and Scotland, they, they turned to church government. And so in rapid succession, uh, they, uh, they produced a directory for ordination, uh, a radical text, really interesting, uh, then a directory for, for worship, then a directory for church government, which parliament didn't really like. Um, then they produced uh, a confession of faith. Um, just prior to producing their confession of faith, they produced kind of like a little negative confession of faith, what members need to believe versus mem- ministers. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then they produced a catechism that was long, catechism that was short, um, and more. We can talk more about those catechisms if you like. But the, the main doctrinal work was completed uh, between 1643 and 1648. Hmm. And then they kind of trundled on doing about five more years 
of a task that they had been engaged in very heavily the whole time. That is examining ministers for ministry, hmm. uh, creating a kind of grid through which everyone had to go. If they were coming into the ministry or moving from one church to another, you had to be examined by the assembly. And they did 5,000 examinations. Wow. The church had about 10,000 clergymen, so that's a lot of people. About 4,000 people. Some of them got examined more than once. Wow. Uh, went through the assembly. And they did it all without Zoom. And they did it all without Zoom, yes. Yeah. How's that for a credentials committee meeting examining 5,000 yes. prospective ministers? Yes. They got quite good at it, I think. <laughs> yes. Especially John Lee, the, the chair of the committee. Man. In the various resources that were produced by the assembly, where in the either chronological order or perhaps pecking order would the larger catechism have fallen? Was it later in their process? Was it earlier? Yeah. The, the larger catechism is the, this, the penultimate, the second last doctrinal work to be produced. Okay. Um, so it's written in, 16, in early 1647. It's completed. Mm -hmm. uh, then they write the shorter, which is Mostly a reduction of the larger, but there are some significant tweaks and improvements that are that are made. Um, so the larger catechism is the biggest doctrinal work. Oh, that's not the last one. And then uh, Parliament insisted that they um, append scriptural passages to each question. The assembly was resistant to do that. They thought that maybe their proof text wouldn't be in. It just wouldn't be obvious to everybody uh, mm -hmm. immediately. They'd have to have explanations. Once you had explanations, you got a much bigger text. So why do we have to do it? And mm -hmm. so on. Uh, but uh, they did it. Yeah. And we're, you know, I'm thankful for it. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the scriptural passages were added in 48. Okay. So you could say that the finished project product is really, you know, it gets its last spit and polish in 48. But the text is settled already in 47. In 47. The texts are added to the text uh -huh. in 48. The, the scriptural proof text. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So wh what about the idea that um, the larger catechism, uh, the, the, larger, um, the larger catechism being a commentary on the confession yeah. itself? And then I guess maybe whether the shorter catechism is sort of a commentary on the larger? Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, for, for some reason, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't think in terms of it being a commentary. I think of it as a as an additional document uh, with some not merely stylistic changes. Of course, it's moving from a confession to a catechism is a big is a big change in terms of genre. Mm. Um, but uh, it really is a it's it's an echo. It it mines the confession that the larger catechism does. But it, it's not really a commentary on it. And indeed, there are areas in which, you know, the, the committee seems to be trying to improve on the confession. with the yeah, larger. So I guess I'll, if we're trying to understand the confession, though, is, yeah. is the larger catechism, does it function as a, a helpful commentary to help oh, us sure. understand? That's, yeah. what I, that's what I really meant. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, in, in that respect, I, I'd say that all of the documents of the Westminster Assembly that are produced as the assembly, together help us understand different phrases and ideas and so on that are in the Confession and Catechism. So the Westminster Assembly wrote 140 documents, actually. Hmm. Um, some of those are being uh, printed for the first time or for the first time in a long time by John Bauer and myself in a series, a seven-volume series with Reformation Heritage books. Uh, the rest of them are in volume five of the minutes and papers 
of the Westminster Assembly at the prohibitive cost that we will not mention, uh, <laughs> given that they're published by Oxford University Press. So if one wants to look, for example, at the way in which the word enjoy is used uh, in the catechisms, you could, you could look at all those documents uh, to try and figure it out. Uh, what, what emphasis does the Westminster Confession of Faith place on certain attributes of God? Well, look at all their letters. When they talk about God in passing, what do they most emphasize? So, so the use of words, mm. the emphasis of different ideas, the thought of the assembly as a whole is clarified when you look at all these documents, you know, one of which is a quarter million words long. Mm -hmm. Historically, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but historically, and there's been some chatter about this recently, um, sort of just casually speaking, of the shorter catechism was initially meant to be employed for children. Is that mm -hmm. right? Well, it, not just children. Okay. Uh, the catechetical tradition leading up to the Westminster Assembly believed that children ought to be catechized, servants ought to be catechized, mm -hmm. um, and that heads of households probably needed to be catechized and before they could catechize. Mm -hmm. um, so it was meant to be the simpler of the two texts, to okay. be sure. But immediately upon its uh, printing, uh, there were those who were trying to offer manuals and how to make it even easier. Uh -huh. So um, uh, William Lyford, who was invited to the assembly, supportive of the assembly, didn't come for some reason, uh, offered a kind of training manual on with different steps on how to, how to use that catechism. You know, reading it first, making sure people understand the words, and then so on, different different steps. And then um, uh, John Wallace, following Herbert Palmer's method of catechizing, took the shorter catechism and said, how can we make this more accessible to children in particular? Mm -hmm. And he thought yes, no questions would be the answer. Mm -hmm. um, so what's the chief, chief end of man? Question. And then there are possible answers, kind of like a multiple choice comes, comes after it. Uh, is the chief end of man to, to get whatever you want in life? And the margin says, no. Uh, is the chief end of man uh, you know, to fulfill your own pleasures? And the margin says, no. And there's a couple other options. And then is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? And the margin says, yes. And each question was done like that. And actually, my wife and I have found this helpful hmm. um, uh, to, to ask a question and see if not only people can memorize it, but first, can they even recognize what's true? And not by a change of voice, not by leaning in as you ask the final question, <laughs> right. not by always making it the last, but, but actually kind of asking the question and giving different possible options, some of which are heretical um, or untrue. Mm -hmm. and, and then somewhere in there, the right one, and seeing if, if kids can kind of recognize what's, what's true, what's right. Mm. And we've done it with more than just kids. Sure, well. yeah. yeah. So then historically, uh, so if that's the shorter catechism, historically, how about the larger catechism? I know it's, you know, for those who have made some progress in religion, yes. has it always been just for ministers and theologians? Has it been more broadly employed? Well, that's a, that's a tough question to answer because sure. the, the moment we, we, we begin talking about the, the use of catechisms, we're taking off our historical theologian's hat and putting on our social theologian's hat. Sure. So um, understanding how catechisms are used um, is, is really difficult. There's, there's been a couple, uh, oh boy, what's her name? Is it Agnes Rose or I, I think? Boy, uh, she, she has a, a, a wonderful doctoral thesis on the use of catechisms in New England, which mm. is very illuminating. Um, I, 
Elliot Vernon has a new book that came out in 2022 on London Presbyterians. And I think you can get a little bit of insight on, on, on how catechizing was done there mm-hmm. through his work. But, but that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a question that would require a different kind of digging sure. to be able to answer well. Sure. But we do know that adults use the, sh- the larger more than others. Only recently for the first time has the larger catechism ever been reprinted at the back of a Presbyterian hymnal. Hmm. Um, uh, the the uh, OPC-URC uh, joint venture, uh, the, the Psalter hymnal mm-hmm. has them both at the back, uh, both catechisms. Uh, but uh, yeah, we, 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 of course we know of prodigious stories of people memorizing the mm-hmm. larger as well as the shorter. Um, prodigious. I mean, there's any number of cases where, where people did that. I know that's one right. family that memorized the, the larger, both in English and in Japanese. My goodness. Uh, that's, a, that's a step above. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, the, did the assembly, perhaps maybe this is a more narrow uh, thought, uh, did they intend for it to be just for ministers? Did they, did they intend for it to be employed more, more broadly? No, yeah, I, I think much more broadly. Okay. Yes. So, so for, for adults, for those mature in the faith, mm-hmm. Certainly not just for, for ruling elders or ministers. Yeah. Okay. Very good. For, for those mature in the faith or maturing, those seeking to mm, grow. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, the larger catechism adds things that the, that the confession just doesn't have. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I've written a little book called Confessing the Faith. Mm-hmm. I'm really toying with writing a book called, uh, uh, oh, oh what, what was I going to call it? <laughs> Uh, living the faith, living, living the faith, a uh-huh. commentary on the larger catechism. Okay, um, I, I'm I'm tempted to do that. I read the larger, uh, you know, I don't know, not every morning, but mm-hmm. many mornings of the year, and I find it very profitable. So, of course, the the big the big thing you get in the catechisms that you don't get uh, in the confession is that exposition of the law, which makes yeah. up such a large part of it, mm-hmm. and that's what yeah. That's what you're talking about. It's a, it, it, the daily instruction. That's where a lot of that's going to yeah. going to come from. But but I think we can also add that the work of Christ is summarized in one paragraph in chapter eight of the Confession. But under the rubric of uh, humiliation and exaltation and the threefold office of Christ, the work of Christ is expounded at a length that's maybe perhaps 10 or 15 times as long. So the accomplishment of redemption is given a treatment in the larger that is much more expansive than in the confession. Okay. So it's a very significant difference. I think that's true of the doctrine of God in the first you know, 10 or 15, you know, uh-huh. generally speaking. Yeah. There's a and lot of good doctrine mm-hmm. of God there. Mm-hmm. There's the treatment of angels, mm-hmm. uh, which any solid post-Reformation theologian wants to talk about. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, all the discussion on the church and worship, uh, which is, you know, many of the practicalities of, of, of the Christian life with respect to the church are there. Uh, something I'd like to ask always, you know, I talk to Daryl Hart about what's it like to live with Machen for 15 or 20 years. <laughs> but what's it like to live with the divines? What kind of people were they? I mean, would we admire them personally? Would we find them yeah. irritating? I mean, they were diverse, surely. yeah. yeah. But what's it like to live in that in that seventeenth century with those guys? So, Brad, of course, I still live at quite a distance, but uh, I have portraits uh, and pictures of about twenty divines in my house, 
Uh, and uh, when I when I work, I often have them looking at me. Some are uh, more uncles, smiley than others. You tell you tell the people those are your uncles. <laughs> <laughs> All my dead uncles. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, th- there came a point when I was uh, trying to finish my my doctoral thesis when I dreamt that Samuel Rutherford uh, uh, offered to help me with understanding the minutes. And the dream is still vivid today. He, he said, I, I was right there. Any, any problems you have in reading this handwriting, I, I could probably help you out. And I remember waking up just feeling so grateful that I was gonna have this help. And then of course, within moments, I'm realizing, well, wait a minute. You know, I turned to my wife and said, I, I almost had Samuel Rutherford's help, but then I, then I woke up. Um, so I, I feel like I, I know a lot of these men. I, 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 think, I, uh, I think I view them as, as friends. Uh, I see some of my foibles in them, and I see a lot of greatness in terms of scholarship and integrity in them that I want to see in myself. Um, I'm often... Uh, I'm often encouraged as I reflect on Charles Hurl at the end of a debate saying, concedo omnia, I concede everything. Hmm. Uh, that's not easy for a man to do, uh, to say, I, you're, you're right, I'm wrong. Uh, there's, there's, there's enough of that happening at the assembly. Mm-hmm. Well, now, men are pretty good at doing that at home sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I well, that. I'm glad you are, Brad. Uh, I'd say I've met men who still have room to grow there. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder, and, and I don't know if you have any anecdotes on this or not, but, you know, the, the assembly did their work. It was largely not very well received in the Church of England, but the, it was well received in the Church of Scotland. It gets exported, transported across the Atlantic. Larger catechism, fairly well received in, in the history of American Presbyterianism, so far as you know. It was been received and useful to our churches. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think the larger catechism has mostly been ignored in the history of Okay. Of, of America. I yeah. mean, the confession um, is, uh, is of tremendous importance in shaping the theological categories, the phraseology, the wording uh, of, uh, of Protestant theologians in America well beyond uh, Presbyterianism. Mm-hmm. Shorter catechism, even more so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that Wesley chose to revise the shorter catechism shows both that there's actually a system of doctrine in the Shorter Catechism because he had to systematically revise it. Mm-hmm. But it also shows j- just how compelling the document is that someone as far away from the Reformed faith as Wesley um, uh, w- would think it's better to revise the Shorter than to try and come up with his own. Okay. Yeah, so it had a lot of utility as a medium, as, a, yeah. as an example Absolutely. Of, of how to go about it. Yeah, and I think Bob Godfrey, in an essay in the volume uh, To Glorify and Enjoy God that mm-hmm. came out, uh, oh boy, a couple decades ago at least, um, uh, makes the excellent point that where a church has neglected the larger catechism, uh, it, it, it can encourage a kind of solipsistic, so, so, oh, I want to say a solipsis. This is not the word I want. Solipsistic. <laughs> uh-huh. That's what I want to say. Uh, kind of view of life, very individualistic uh, take on things. Because right. the, the, the shorter catechism really is, is asking um, uh, theological questions in a more individualistic uh, way. Mm-hmm. The larger keeps asking questions about the church. 
what's true of the church? What did mm-hmm. Christ do for the for the church? How yeah. are we to live as a church? How are we to use the means of grace best as a church? Um, and I think that's that's just a really good insight on on Godfrey's part. Yeah. And I, I think one of the reasons why so many people like the shorter and not the larger is not simply because the larger is larger, mm-hmm. but because it makes us think in a churchly way. Uh-huh. Uh, in a way in which we think more in, a, if, in an individualistic or a parachurchy kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that that may be why the uh, the New City Catechism that the Gospel Coalition produced is much it's, it's much more like the shorter. Than yeah, the that's that's right. It's so it's avoiding even more, much more than the shorter. It's avoiding possible areas of contention, but then it's not really helping us to live a churchly. Mm. Uh, life. It's not helping us to think and function as a church. So here's a question. Was the, was the Westminster Assembly the original gospel coalition? <laughs> because it was ecumenical. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was a compromise. There were compromises made. Yeah. So maybe as yeah. we wrap up and then whatever Sean has, um, oh, what were some of the compromises? Or, yeah. Do you think they were serious or, or, or were they the best kind? Yeah. So... So, Brad, I'd, I'd say that uh, it's not the original gospel coalition. It is a parachurch institution, the Westminster Assembly. Uh, but all of those who contribute were ministers of the Church of England or of the Church of Scotland. Um, so, so in that sense, people have a level of accountability and, and a degree of representation. Um, but, you know, they're all... Uh, Eventually, the, the majority are Presbyterians. Uh, so there are Congregationalists present, but there are no, paid, there, there are no uh, Credo-Baptists at the Westminster Assembly. No one's even inclined towards Credo-Baptism at the Westminster Assembly. Amen. Uh, we should all shout amen. Uh, uh, you, you have some who remain somewhat sympathetic to Episcopalianism. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, so we're talking about some ecclesiological and polity uh, ecumenicity, if you will, but that's mm. pretty limited compared to, say, uh, the Gospel Coalition today. Um, when it comes to compromises, uh, we, 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 we find little, little bits and pieces here and there. The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks about ministers and other church governors. Why doesn't it just say elders? Well, because Parliament didn't like ruling elders, and so they were trying to fight the ruling elder battle in a different document rather than that document. Um, uh, There's ways in which the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith was not as defensive or highly qualified as it could be in the face of some uh, doctrinal divergences amongst the Reformed. But having said that, I often use the example of, uh, of confessions and creeds as uh, like different vehicles in a presidential motorcade. Uh, the Apostles' Creed is like an open-top convertible. Uh, you know, it offers no defense, really, against, against error. It just states truth, but doesn't, doesn't try to defend itself. Then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got you know, the Chalcedonian definition. Um, or the Athanasian Creed. That's more like an armored car, R- right? It, it's made to, to be defended against almost anything that can be thrown at it on the issues it's discussing. Yep. The Westminster uh, standards are more like, you know, an, an, uh, uh, kind of a 
bulletproof limousine. Uh, it might be a stretch, but um, uh, it, it's an, it, there's an effort to create something that's a little bit more comfortable, usable. Uh, there is an effort to protect against error uh, on any number of doctrinal points, but they could have added clauses, phrases, qualifying and ors, and other things all over the place that would have strengthened it and would have uh, limited the ability of some people um, to subscribe to it, but it also would have read like a really clunky, heavy document that the ordinary minister and member of the pew would find difficult to use. Mm. And so, so there is a concern for literary excellence, for, for smooth prose, and for clarity that at times might outweigh the intention to exclude errors. Mm -hmm. The principal intention is to promote truth. There is an intention to exclude error, but they could have done more there, yeah. and they chose not to, rather than create the armored car version of a confession. Huh. Well, they knew that they knew the PCA would be. They prophesied that the PCA would be coming one day. So, you know, you, you got to leave some wiggle room. <laughs> But by which I'll interpret that to mean they knew the PCA was coming someday and knew that good ministers would have hard conversations about the meaning of all this. There you go. Yeah, in podcasts, too. <laughs> That's it. Chad, I know we're winding towards a conclusion, but you're a professor. You've been a pastor. You mentioned a few minutes ago that, at least by our judgment in American Presbyterianism, the larger catechism has been largely ignored. Any advice, any tips on how we might begin to rectify that? I mean, folks come to it. It's 196 questions. You get to some of those answers on the Decalogue, the exposition of the Ten Commandments. Those are long. Yeah. It can be intimidating yeah. for a lot of folks. Any thoughts there? Yeah, so, so when I'm, I, I go through different creeds and confessions in addition to my own Bible reading in the mornings uh, on, on, on most, most days, and I, I, uh, I just tend to read like a column. Uh, I, I have a creeds and confessions Bible that has different creeds and confessions at the back, and I, I just read a column from the larger catechism. Uh, and uh, I... I I reflect on these descriptions of the gospel, the law, and of robust doctrine, in part just to help inform my prayers. Uh, helps me helps me adore God better. Hmm. Uh, so I, I use both the material from what I'm reading from the scriptures and this condensation of scriptural teaching uh, to to try and deepen my own devotion. Uh, I think it's helpful for churches to uh, to organize their Sunday school classes. Uh, so that you can get to confessional doctrine. Mm -hmm. The way I did it when I, was a, when I was a pastor was in charge of adult Sunday school education. Uh, over four years, we'd go through all of church history. Over four years, we'd go through the whole Bible. Over four years, we'd go through uh, uh, either the whole confession or, the whole, or a whole catechism mm -hmm. um, and just help expose people to, to those texts that way. And then another quarter, we would do other things. Um, I, I think it's useful sometimes in a sermon to say, you know, this biblical truth is stated really well here, mm. and I'll, I'll quote the larger catechism or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we've, uh, we've been worshiping at Christ's Covenant lately in, mm -hmm. in uh, Charlotte, and uh, I've noticed how often Kevin DeYoung will use the larger catechism when it comes to uh, a baptism, the Lord's Supper, or some other part of the worship service. He'll, he'll just read a part or, 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 or quote part of it. Um, uh, that's, that's really helpful. It's not hard to do. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't need to say everything every time you administer the Lord's Supper, and you could just highlight different truths from the larger catechism uh, 
and uh, different passages of Scripture when, when you do it from week to week. So there's a lot of different ways of doing that. If I'm to just continue my ramble one little bit longer, another way of doing this is just keep your Sunday school basically as it is, but have a sort of 10 to 15 minute section at the beginning of your Sunday school lesson where you just give a little bit of doctrine. And so I've done that at two churches as well. So we're going to have a, rather than having an hour of Sunday school or 45 minutes, uh, we, we, uh, we do a sort of 10 minutes, 12 minutes on the larger catechism or the confession or something like that, mm-hmm. and then have 30 minutes or 45 minutes on whatever else we were going we to talk about. That way people don't find the doctrine overwhelming. Right. And by the way, I often do it at the, I came to do it at the end of the lesson mm. um, uh, because it helps set us up for worship. You know, you could be talking about Arianism or Pelagianism or whatever else it might be. Right. And then you say, and now for our 15 minutes on the larger catechism. Mm-hmm. No, that's helpful. That's good. And if folks are encouraged by that, we hope so. And maybe in our little tiny corner of the Lord's Vineyard, we might do something to make the larger catechism not quite so neglected here Amen. in North American Presbyterianism. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks very much. And Sean, uh, you can say, say uh, farewell to your larger for life listeners. Folks, thanks for joining us today as we've been had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn about the Westminster Assembly and some of the papers and items and resources produced by the Westminster Divines and more specifically on the larger catechism. So we hope that this has been a useful and informative and encouraging conversation for you as we continue our slow and steady journey discussing and studying and talking through uh, the wonderful resource that is the larger catechism. So until next time, take care and God bless. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.